I've been asked a few times where I'm from by people as I've adjusted to be here. Uh, some people have thought I was from Michigan. Others have thought I was from Philadelphia. Someone even thought I was from England, which I don't sound like it. But let me give you an interesting fact. I am from California. I'm from the East Bay of San Francisco. And I'm going to use that fact to share with you a cultural observation I've made that I only hope you can share with me. So I'm taking a shot in the dark here. I've done a little bit of research, which means that I've asked three people if this is correct, and they said, I don't know, kind of. So we'll see. I think there are three versions of nearly every person in California. There is who you are when you're driving. You haven't heard it yet. Who you are when you're walking down the street. And then there's who you are when you're on a hike. The three versions. All right. Everybody knows what you're like when you're driving. Whatever version of yourself you are, you're just a few more steps towards the movie Mad Max. You are uh, anxious or aggressive or forceful, and you'll do things and say things you would not normally say. Fortunately, that is not who most of us are, I hope, when we're walking down the street, because you would never say those same things to anyone's face. In fact, I'm willing to bet you won't say anything to anybody. That's a normal California thing that doesn't exist everywhere, that if you're walking down the street, you go forward. You're about your business. But then something strange happens. All of a sudden, we rise in elevation. When any of us go on a hike, we know it's a social custom that you say, hey, how's it going? Nice day, isn't it? And if someone's looking like they're really struggling up the hill, you give them a little encouragement, like you go, you're, you're getting there. A, you're doing so well, even if they're not. Why am I bringing this up? Here it is. All of these things are evidences of cultural norms that we only notice once they're broken. Here's what I mean. If you go out of church this morning and you walk down State Street and somebody stops you and they want to talk to you, I'm going to bet that one of these questions is in your head. What are you selling what do you want from me? Are you dangerous? Or maybe the most prevalent one, which religion do you want me to convert to right now? That's our initial thought. I bring this up because this is a part of a Californian culture that emphasizes things like privacy, busyness, the individual, goals. And I want us to start to think in this way because here's a universal truth, whether you agree with my analysis of Californians or not. Cultures impact the people and institutions that are inside them. I'll say it again. Cultures impact the people and the institutions inside them, including churches and Christians. So it begs us to ask, what is the impact of California's culture on California's churches and California's Christians? I have an idea. I think living in a very private, very busy, very driven, and very individual culture has made certain aspects of Christianity very attractive and others very unattractive. What has become attractive to many people in California, are the aspects of Christianity that, that highlight God's love for the individual. Forgiveness, contentment, acceptance, spiritual experiences, 
All of those are wonderful things. But it has made other aspects of Christianity very unattractive. Are you ready? Evangelism, outreach, missions work, service. There's a reason that over my time in ministry, I've learned there are a few subjects that you can use to make anyone in the room uncomfortable. You want to know what they are? Politics, hell, and telling people to go to their neighbor's house, knock on the door, and say hello. Everyone's uncomfortable right now. But it's the reason, because cultures impact the institutions and people inside them. In John 4, this principle is demonstrated very well. John 4's story of the woman at the well is one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. Almost everyone knows it, either inside the church or outside the church. It's famous. But relatively unfamiliar are the words we just read, which happen right in the middle of the story. Why is this? Well, John 4, as we looked at last week, is a beautiful story about a woman who has had a life of suffering and pain, who meets Jesus, and all of a sudden she's filled with joy, and she shares it with everybody. She's restored. And then the disciples show up, and Jesus starts talking about a field, and harvest, and work, and reaping. And if we're not confused, we're a little bit off-put, because we're like, could you please go back to the part of this beautiful story of this woman who's saved? Now, this isn't everybody, so you have to examine yourself. I'm not making an accusation here. I'm making an observation. This is how things tend to go. And if we tend towards the direction that our culture might push us towards, then what is happening is that not only do we miss the story of the Samaritan woman, we miss its full beauty. Not only do we miss what it really means to meet Jesus, we, we miss what it means to be sent by him into the world. And that's what these verses explore. They explore the deep beauty of the story of the Samaritan woman, the deep and real beauty of what it means to meet Jesus, and the beauty of what it means to be sent into the world by him, to join him. And so to make this simple, we're gonna, we're gonna look at three things. Three things in this text. If you're a note taker, here's what you can write down as an outline. Three things that Jesus shares with all of his people. The first thing he shares is his worldview. The second thing he shares is his work. And the third thing he shares is his joy. His worldview, his work, and his joy. So let's look at the Bible. This is John 4, 31 to 34. That's where we'll start. So here's what happens. Jesus kicks off this entire piece of beauty because the disciples ask him if he's having lunch. They say this in verse 31, Rabbi, eat. For a bit of context, here's why they're there. They were traveling from Judea, which is all the way down here, to Galilee, which is all the way up here. About halfway through, there's this place called Samaria, and inside Samaria, there's this place called Sychar. And near Sychar, there's this well. And that's where Jesus stopped on this long journey. He sat down, and as John writes, it's because he was weary from his journey. We'll come back to that. And so when he was weary, his disciples went into town to buy food, and that's when a Samaritan woman comes out to meet him at the well. Not to meet him, to gather water, but that's where she meets him. And then when the disciples come back, from their perspective, they don't know what they talked about, but this woman is now running into town and saying, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the Bible says that they marveled. They were confused. 
And they had to restrain themselves from saying, why is he talking to a woman? But they brought food back, because it was lunchtime. So that was their mood. They just heard this woman talk about Jesus the Christ, and they're like, time for lunch. And so they say, Rabbi, eat, and look at verses 31 to 34. This is what happens. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Now real quick, you know we're allowed to recognize the humor in this? Must have been kind of awkward for the fellas, right? Who are all eating lunch. And they're like, Jesus, aren't you gonna eat too? And he's like, my food is to serve God. I'm like, well, I'm not hungry anymore. <laughs> all right, thanks, Jesus. I mean, Jesus gets to play the Jesus card because he invented it. But yeah, it must have been an awkward moment. But there's something confusing here. Still, why didn't Jesus take the food? Just a few verses earlier, we read that Jesus sat down by the well because he was weary. He was tired. Jesus was fully God and fully human, and humans get hungry. So why didn't he take the food? It's strange. But even stranger is that an almost identical thing happened a little bit earlier in the story. See, remember that Samaritan woman he was talking to? Well, she went out to the well that day so that she could get water. And by the end of the story, when she was going into town, she left something behind. You know what it was? Water. She left the whole reason she was coming to the well behind at the well. Earlier in that, Jesus said, if you ask me, I'll give you living water that will make it so you are never thirsty again, and that water will well up to eternal life. We can conclude she left the water jug behind. She wasn't thirsty anymore. So Jesus didn't skip the food because someone else gave him food. That's what the disciples thought. He skipped the food because Jesus wasn't hungry anymore. Something else had satisfied him. And as John says, it's doing the will of the one who sent him. Throughout the Bible, we see what this is. Proclaiming good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Sight to the blind. Binding up the brokenhearted. Everything that he did with the Samaritan woman. And for the disciples, this is confusing. See, Jesus doesn't see the world the way everyone else sees the world. And when he reveals that that's the case it can be off-putting. And so what he does is he sometimes uses analogies. And before we dive into the rest of this text where he unpacks this analogy, I wanna show you what it is and why this one. See, here's how Jesus views the world. The world is a field. Now Jesus uses lots of imagery throughout the entirety of the Gospels to explain the world and explain other things. But none are so common as plants, and flowers, and vines, and fields, and farms. Why? The reason that this analogy is so common and so important is because it's identical with how God has made the world. And if we understand it, we'll actually understand how the world works and where it's going. So if we want to understand Jesus' worldview, we need to understand the analogy. And if we want to understand the analogy, we need to understand fields. Thankfully, fields are pretty simple. You've all seen a field. A field's a blank plot of land. That's how it starts, at least. It's barren, it's empty. There's nothing in it. But if somebody decides to work the field 
as in they till the ground and they plant seeds and they tend to those seeds and they water them and they make sure that the plants grow, then all of a sudden, the field is, is fruitful. And then you do this thing called harvesting, where you collect the plants that have been fully grown and after a harvest came a celebration because the work is over. You can rest and you can eat. So fields go through four stages. It's pretty clear. Barrenness, growth, harvest, celebration. Barrenness, growth, harvest, celebration. That's how the world works. In fact, that's how God made the world. See, if you look at Genesis 1-2, it says that the earth was formless and void. It was empty, barren. Then it says that over six days, God began to fill the entire world growth. So that by the end of the sixth day, what was there was the world and everything in it. And inside of that was something special, a garden with a man named Adam inside of it, tending to it, caring for it, harvesting. And at the end of all these things, you know what the Bible says? It says, God looked upon everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Celebration. But then Adam and Eve did the one thing that they were commanded not to do, which is eat from the tree of the forbidden fruit. And so sin entered the world, and sin brought death with it, barrenness. It made a comeback, and a big one. See, not only did God tell Adam that no longer are you going to have this plentiful harvest from a garden, but you will work the ground with sweat and effort. The world was stuck in barrenness and death. Do you know death is not a natural phenomena? Death is an evil phenomena. It's an invasive species into who humanity is. That's how the Bible describes it. That death is abhorrent. It's, we're meant for fruitfulness, but death invades. And so what does God do? Does he decide to abandon the entire world to this thing called death? Or does he stay consistent with this worldview that the world is a field? The world is a field that he intends for flourishing, for fruitfulness. So God begins to plant through promises and prophets and kings and judges. He sends people into the world to, the, to promise that someday death will be overthrown and the harvest will come. Someday this invasive species will be gone. One prophet named Isaiah puts it this way. He said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with, listen to this, joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so it was. For years and years, that God sent people into the world whose best message was soon, 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 soon. But they had hope because they knew that God's intentions and picture of the world was that of a field, that no matter what, it is destined and purposed for flourishing, thriving, for harvest, celebration, and rest. 
You know, knowing the end of a story really affects how you hear it, how you see it. It's why all of us avoid spoilers. Because we don't want anyone to rob us of the suspense and the thrill of watching something and not knowing what's coming next. But life doesn't really work that way, does it? I'm sure many of us would like some spoilers. Many of us would like to be robbed of a little bit of the anxiety and the suspense and the worry and the uncertainty that comes with tomorrow, next week, next year, five years. You know, when you see this and you understand the world like this, that is exactly what happens. Because it allows you to look at your own life and however confused you may be and tempted to despair Understand the vision and the direction for what the world is and say that no matter what, I know that the world is a field meant for flourishing. I know that the end cannot be anything but life and celebration. That is the worldview Jesus gives and that gives us hope that the world is a field meant for flourishing and hope changes how you live. And so it's inside of this worldview that Jesus shares the second thing with all his people, which is his work. Look at uh, verses 35 to 38. Here's how he continues. Do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So hold on to that worldview we just talked about. The world is a field, men for flourishing, It was living in a season of of waiting and growth and planting, hoping. The message was soon, 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 soon. What Jesus is saying is now, right now. He gives them one, one instruction through this whole text. And it's so simple, it's so simple a baby could do it. Look. Look, I tell you, and you will see that the fields are white for harvest. What he's saying is that you will now look at the world differently because when Jesus comes, he brings the harvest, the long-awaited time where the message is not soon life will be had, but now I have brought life. So he tells them, look. You know, if you look, you will see that the world is in pain. You can see that. If you look, you will see that the world is hungry, desperately searching for life and meaning, and they're trying to find it in, in, in romance and in beauty and in, in popularity, in fun and entertainment. Look, you'll see the world is worried. This thing called death looms over people's heads, an invasive species. But what Jesus is saying is, look, And you will see that we hold the very thing the world has been waiting for since it was made. Look, and you will see an empty cross and an empty tomb. Look, 
and you will see the Son of Man ascended to heaven. Look, and you will see him sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Look, and you will see that he is calling all people to himself. And all you have to do is look and see that what the world has been waiting and pining for. Jesus says, I bring it. It's why that day when that Samaritan woman made a routine trip out to the well to gather water, she came back with life. And it's why Jesus was satisfied because this is his work to speak life freely to a world that's been waiting for it. And it's this work that he invites us into. See, God is calling you to do more than to experience the life he gives you. He's calling you to participate in the restoration of the world. This is why that vision of the world as a field matters so much because it means that his relationship with you, which we find very attractive, is so intimately connected to his vision for the entire world, his vision for restoring it to fruitfulness. And it's at this point that our cultural worldview is most likely to butt up against Jesus' worldview. You see, because of this work of reaping, which Jesus says here is speaking life into the world, only makes sense within the worldview that the world is a field, then if you don't have the worldview, you won't have the work. If you don't have the worldview, there'll be no reason to do the work. And so if, if a person is committed to not breaking any cultural norms within California or Santa Barbara, and that they really do commit themselves to the private, busy, achieving, dedicated lifestyle, it makes no sense that you would want to talk about Jesus or do any gospel work with anybody because of, you're violating every cultural norm. People will think you're weird. You're going to offend people. People will think you're arrogant because you say you know it's true. You might be a social pariah. Now, before I keep going, I want to address something very... <laughs> Just be, I'm going to be candid for a minute. It's possible to hear all this and say hoorah because you are, by temperament, determined to go in the other direction. You say, well, I love being offensive and I love being a social prize. So that makes me a good Christian, right? No. No. I had a professor in seminary who used to call people who want to share the gospel like this that they're doing what's called burp evangelism. Here's how it works. You have this pressure inside of your chest because you've heard that it's a Christian duty to go and make proselytes of other people. And so you feel this tremendous pressure and so you go up to the first person you can and you burp the gospel all over them and you feel a tremendous sense of relief and they have a horrible taste in their face. It's gross, but it's true. Because no matter what you say, that person's gonna say, well, they didn't seem interested in knowing me at all. They seemed brash and, and, and rough and that our entire relationship was based on whether or not I was gonna agree with them on their beliefs. And so even if I agreed with them, I wouldn't tell them and I wouldn't become like them because I don't wanna be like that to other people. Here's what we're being called to when I'm talking about gospel work. Jesus talks about this with his disciples in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I am sending you out, he uses the same language here as he does in John, as sheep in the midst of wolves. And hear this, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. When you hear these words, I want you to hear them with wisdom. There are two things from John 4 that will inform how we work. First, adopt this worldview 
that the world is a field meant for restoration. Not only does it give you hope, but it helps you to see why we're called to do what we do as Christians. And second, the only command Jesus gives inside of John 4, look. Look at the world with eyes that are shaped by a restorative worldview. What's gonna happen when you do that is your definition of work for the kingdom is gonna expand to be much bigger than sharing the gospel verbally with other people. That is definitely gospel work, but it's not the only kind of gospel work. You'll begin to see that any type of work that contributes to the restoration, contributes to speaking life into the world, anything that contributes to bringing people in for the harvest, anything is gospel work. What do I mean by that? I mean if you're a creative, that if you do art, do you know that's gospel work? Whatever your vocation is, do you know that can be gospel work? There's a term for this, it's called sphere of influence. God has given every single person in here particular gifts. And it means that with the gifts God has given you, what is your sphere of influence? That is, if you're a family, think about how as a father, you can speak life to your family. As a mother, how you can do this. If you're in a friend circle, if you're on a team, if you're a manager at work, if you're an employee, if you go to a club on the weekends, all of these places are places where you can begin to look and ask the question, where am I seeing that the field is white for harvest? Jesus says it's there. His instruction is to look and you'll see it. Look and you'll see that now is the time that people who are hungry for life can hear it and have it. Now I'm not promising that this will be comfortable, but I'm promising that this is a part of God's work in the world. To begin to look at the world like it's a field. Understand that being called to gospel life is to be called to gospel work. The motivation that Jesus gives us comes next. So he shares his worldview with us. He shares his work with us. But look, he shares his joy with us. Look back at verse 36. This is what Jesus says. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. The sowers are the people who promised soon, they were planting, were called as reapers. And what Jesus is saying is that the sower and the reaper rejoice together, which means the entire chorus of saints throughout the history of the world rejoices together over this work. And I just want to show you a picture of it. In fact, I want to show you three of them. In Luke 15, Jesus gives three parables. It shows us what his joy is and what he shares with us. Here's what they are. The first one is about sheep. This is a man who owns 100 sheep. When he loses one, goes out. He looks for that sheep. And he comes home and he carries it on his shoulders. And when he does this, everybody in the town comes and rejoices with him because he has lost his sheep and it's been found. What Jesus proceeds to say is that is the joy of heaven over one person who repents. The next parable is like it. He says it's about a coin. See, there's a woman who has 10 silver coins and inside of her house she loses one. And so she sweeps the entire house looking for it frantically. And when she finally finds it, she calls all of her neighbors to her house and she rejoices with them because what is lost has been found. And what Jesus proceeds to say is that will be what the celebration is like over one person who repents. The third parable 
is a little more popular. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. It's about a father who has two sons and a field and some workers. One of the sons tells his dad, Dad, I'd like my inheritance now. The money that I'm supposed to get when you die, I'd like it today. And his dad gives it to him and he goes out and he spends it all on fun. He gambles it away, bets it away, spends it on women, spends it on whatever he wants until he has nothing. And he finds he's eating next to the pigs. And he says, look, my only option now is to go home and beg my dad to take me in as a slave. So that's what he does. He begins to walk home and think the only way I could be accepted here is if I'm a slave, if I have no rights of my own if the only part of my identity is whether I'm obedient or not. And so he walks back to the father's farm, and when he gets there, the father starts running. And he runs to him, and he hugs him. And he says, bring a robe, bring a ring, bring shoes, and kill the fattened calf. We're having a feast and a party because my son was dead. And behold, he's alive. And that verse ends this way, three words, and they celebrated. You see, if the world's a field and it was being planted for a while and Jesus brought the harvest, that means only one thing is left. And you know what that is? Celebration. Celebration. What this shows is that Jesus' joy, the basis of the celebration, was when Jesus brought you to himself. Did you know that? Did you know that when you knew Jesus, heaven rejoiced? The heavens shouted in praise that you came to know Jesus. But here's the truth we often forget. The heavens shout the same way when your neighbor comes to know Jesus. We're invited to share that joy as Jesus says, that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine? The harvest is done, life is had, everybody's resting, and there's a celebration with all saints throughout all ages. And you are sharing joy with Jesus. There's no better picture of life than that. And there was no sweeter motivation. So I'd be out of place to give you any other instruction from this text than Jesus does. Look. Look. This week, look, and you'll see that the field is white for harvest. Look, and you'll see that the world is hungry for the gospel. If you see the world as a field, you can be certain God will restore it. He's invited you to participate in that restoration so that someday soon when he returns, you and him rejoice over every lost sheep, every lost coin, and every dead son who behold lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the abundant blessings of life that you lay upon us. Help us to see the world with eyes for restoration, hope, and joy. And teach us to look and see in each of our lives where the field is white for harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.